The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about stopping the drilling for oil and gas off of the southeast uh, coastline of the Atlantic Ocean here. And also, off in Alaska, we don't want any more. We don't want any oil drilling and gas drilling. And our champion, working to uh, spearheading the effort with a bunch of other people, is with me today, David Helbarg. Hello, David. Hey, Rob. I, I uh, count you among those with us making this happen. Oh yeah. Oh, it takes it takes a nation to save the ocean. My new exactly. expression. Exactly, and restore the blue uh, in our red, white, and blue. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll accept some whites too, and a few reds. Yeah. Uh, but uh, oh my gosh! So last time I talked to you, which was quite recently, you were we were talking about preparing for an event in Washington. And so, um, what, what was the initial um, your initial thoughts of this event that went off so superbly in Washington? Yeah, I thought it was great. It was the. Uh... Earlier this month, the launch of the Sea Party in terms of a press conference that was uh, held below the Capitol and beside an 85-foot life-size inflatable blue whale, which was there to represent, um, you know, a healthy ocean without oil spills. And more amazing than the whale, of course, was was this coalition we brought together that included some of our predictable friends, Bill McKibben from 350.org and, and Representative Sam Farr, who's a longtime ocean champ out of California, but also a couple of um, conservative uh, Tea Party Republicans, Kurt Clausen out of Florida and Mark Sanford from South Carolina, who also were outspoken against um, offshore drilling, as, as was Peg Howell, a former oil industry uh, offshore engineer and company man for Chevron, as was... Uh, um, a evangelical minister who spoke about, you know, God's stewardship and ours. Um, so it was a real mix of right and left, and I think that's what's unique about, um, in fact, the next day, the main newspaper in South Carolina had a headline, Mark Sanford from Tea Party to Sea Party. And um, I think what's unique about the opposition is that it's not run along traditional lines. It's It's as much about place and faith as it is. Democrat or Republican, because the reality is there's bipartisan greed we're fighting. The the idea of, of new drilling in the Arctic, uh, which is on hold for now, and along the Atlantic coastline came from the Obama administration. It's got the support of a uh, you know, Democratic governor in Virginia, Republican governors in the, 
Carolinas and Georgia, but um, but they're also, as I say, there's you know people like Mark Sanford, who's from the coastal district of South Carolina, where literally every town and city in South Carolina's coastal zone has have passed resolutions against drilling, and so he's reflecting that. And and that Kurt Clausen's a longtime diver and was at our Blue Vision Summit, and and so I think that what we're going to see is um, because of the unusual nature of this coalition and because some of these states slated for offshore drilling are also key swing states in the election, like Virginia, Florida, uh, the Carolinas, uh, perhaps, we're, we're going to see that the candidates are going to have to address the issue. And I, I know today um, uh, a number of uh, business people and um, another another ocean conservation group, Oceanus, brought business leaders and elected officials up to Washington, D.C. to talk to the administration, and they're hoping that President Obama, as part of his commitment to climate action, might reverse himself, um, which I hope, too. But if he doesn't, then we certainly want to make make the ocean uh, and, and stopping offshore oil a visible issue in the 2016 election and make sure that the candidates, um, you know, in 2000... Uh, what was it, 2008, the Sarah Palin made drill baby drill an issue. I think we can make get oil out an issue now and make this the new Keystone Pipeline of the seas. Yes, well, your rally really did bring a spotlight to that. And if people want to follow along with uh, what David is telling us about, I recommend that they go to on Facebook to your Facebook page. We've got, and uh, or, or just go online to, uh, we've got cparty2016.org online. There's a cparty2016.org. And do you have the, uh, um, the, uh, the press article that you put out in uh, Saloon? Is that Saloon, Saloon. Yeah, although, Saloon? you know, I, often when I read it, I want to drink. But, uh, yeah, I know, you just but this, go. This was crucial that you... Got, you know, like you said, um, people who are really involved. In, you got the locals up here, and that is, you know, Representative Kirk Clawson from Florida down the Everglades, but most particularly Mark Sanford of South Carolina, because this is why they're drilling off of the southeast coast and not the northeast coast, is because the locals said, come on down and drill. And the northeast people didn't say that to the president. So, the president was, and, and, in a sense, bowing to local concerns, and so it's very cr- crucial and phenomenal that, you know, Kurt Clausen would step up, uh, not Kurt, but uh, Mark Sanford from uh, South Carolina would speak out against uh, this. And you were saying that clearly this is, he's the coastal congressman, and he is reflecting the majority of their people, right? Yeah, and I think that this is, you know, this is going to be a real uh, field campaign that we're going to have to go in and and, uh, and and local groups. I mean, there were other groups that were represented there. There were two local South Carolina activist groups, Soda Pop and, and Don't Spill the Low Country and um, a turtle rescue person from North Carolina. I mean, there's a lot of grassroots fervor, and, and they're talking about moving inland. You know, they've got the coast tied up. They want to start mobilizing the inland constituencies so that ultimately they surround and isolate their governors and force them to uh, say no to the feds, at which point, as you say, they, 
you know, this, this had nothing to do with where they think the oil is. It had everything to do with where they think they can politically get away with more fossil fuel extraction. So they pretty much announced they weren't even going to attempt to uh, drill the West Coast because what we did here 30 years ago in California, which is stop the drilling and replace it with some beautiful marine sanctuaries, I think we can do that on the East Coast. I think in the end we may not have, uh, instead of oil rigs, we might have a, a national marine sanctuary for the outer banks of the Carolinas or some other areas. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to require that we, you know, raise the resources and mobilize the folks and uh, get, get, you know, a couple of thousand yard signs and more Tea Party t-shirts. Our, our emblem is kind of like, we're somewhat like the Tea Party, but with better better characters. We had... Uh, well, you have the Seaweed Rebellion. Yeah, it's the Seaweed Rebellion reborn as, as the Sea Party with our, our emblem is a, a Neptune's trident with a, a moray eel wrapped around it. And the logo is Don't Spill on Me. So yeah. I think uh, it's, you know... As, as, and the Seaweed and, and, and as uh, Representative Sanford said, this is, this is uh, patriotism. You know, what he said, whales are important, as he pointed to the giant blue whale. But he says more important is that, you know, the towns and villages have spoken, and this is about um, democracy. And he said it goes back to the founding fathers 200 years ago. And I think that, uh, I, you know, I would just respond, quoting Thomas Jefferson, that we have to, uh, you know, be prepared to also battle the uh, the aristocracy of our money corporations, and no industrial combine has been greater than than the oil and gas industry today. So that's really what we're fighting. It, you know, we're fighting to protect healthy coastal economies that are, already exist there against the threats, the inevitability. As Peg Howell, the former Chevron uh, oil engineer, said. She says, you know, it's the riskiest thing she's ever done is working offshore. And she said she was with the most competent and professional people. But um, no matter how you try, spills happen. It's inevitable that accidents happen not only offshore but on the onshore infrastructure, the rail lines and the pipelines and the refineries that are required um, if you're going to drill offshore. So I, I think it's, you know, a lot of analogies to um, the Keystone Pipeline which is tar sands is kind of the dirtiest of the fossil fuels out there. And the next most dangerous is clearly offshore uh, oil production, where we've seen historically, starting in the first uh, offshore platforms here in California, in uh, Summerlin, California, the first offshore drilling was in piers. And within years of, uh, within a year of their first drills, there were spillage and uh, sabotage, dynamiting of competitors and uh, blowouts and, you know, by 1901, the San Jose Mercury News reported the town was a slime with oil spillage. And, and every new frontier, whether it's the shallow waters of the Gulf, or the deep waters of the Gulf, or, or the Arctic Ocean, every new frontier, inevitably, uh, frontier waters lead to disasters. And then it's only after the disasters that people start thinking of how to reduce the risk. So luckily, with Greenpeace and other members of the coalition, the sky activists in uh, the Northwest uh, raised the, the public relations risk for shell oil drilling up there. And then after investing $7 billion, they hit a dry hole and their new CEO pulled the plug on it. You know, And the old CEO of, of BP had even warned that they were risking their 
their their corporate image by uh, going into this high risk environment, um, which is the Arctic Ocean. Uh, you were there this past spring when the commandant of the Coast Guard, Paul Zunfeld, warned of a what he called a black swan incident, like a, a Titanic type incident if there was an oil spill or a ship collision up in the Arctic Ocean, because as a nation, we don't have the resources to respond, you know, to do oil spill respond, to do search and rescue. There's not even the basic aid navigation that exists in the rest of the world's ocean uh, up there in the Arctic. So, so BP's withdrawn there, and then the, the Obama administration withdraw, withdrew two other uh, lease sales up there. And so we have a, a period now, at least between now and 2017, when we can work to protect the Arctic Ocean from any future fossil fuel extraction. And, and But this summer and this election year, I think our big fight's going to be, as you said, along the East Coast to uh, mobilize people, uh, make sure that the candidates understand that... Uh, you know that that we don't want and and we won't tolerate um, any more drilling and spilling off our coast. Yes, since um, you know recently, there's been a lot more attention to Gray's Reef National Marine Sanctuary is off of uh, Georgia, and so that's prohibited drilling in that reef. And this is an area for the right whales. It's the calving grounds of the right whales. So there's been a lot of attention about. Well, especially in the Northeast, where the right whales summer, and we've had all these these great white sharks off of Chatham, Cape Cod, and they've tagged the great white sharks and seen that the big ones are females, and these two females are turning up on Gray's Reach and down off of uh, Jacksonville, Florida, along with the right whales. So they seem to be, you know, just cruising along, looking for food like that. And then in October, just last month, the president, for the first time in many a year, declare two new national marine sanctuaries, or at least ask Congress to approve of two new marine sanctuaries. Uh, that's not going to be easy, but uh, at least the sanctuaries are in Maryland, I think on the Chesapeake, and yep. in Lake Michigan. So that, the Maryland one kind of bookends Gray's Reef, and uh, now we just got to clear out the oil and gas drillers in between. And, and it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's, it's almost like the, the opportunity now for the public to nominate sites for marine sanctuaries and, and one of the wonders of the marine sanctuaries that integrate ecological and social and recreational values is, is they exclude oil drilling. And it, it only makes sense if we're going to protect the ocean because the science is already in. There's been you know, um, peer-reviewed science that says if we're going to prevent our blowing through the two degrees Celsius increase in uh, in temperature that that leads to inevitable disaster, um, that we have to leave 80% of the known oil reserves in the ground and under the seabed. So to be looking for new reserves makes no sense, and even less so given that the way you look for it with, uh, with seismic air cannons can uh, damage and kill marine life. We, uh, at our, our press conference, Michael Stalker from uh, an audio you know, expert was playing whale sounds and explaining how the loud, repetitive um, acoustic cannons used to search for offshore oil can can deafen these creatures, and how sound is the light of the sea. It's how how the wildlife feeds and breeds. And if you know, if you deafen a dolphin or whale, you've pretty much killed it, condemned it to slow starvation. And and so you know, the, the it's just, so damaged the hearing system of the whale. Yes, yeah. and 
and and literally, you know, breaks their eardrums and and yeah. Again, you know, I've I've been on offshore rigs in the Gulf and off California, and I, you know, it's it's tough work and challenging, and I respect the roughnecks and roustabouts who are out there, but I I sort of feel when I'm there that it's like I'm on a whaling boat in the 1850s, which is to say, let's honor their contribution to our maritime history and move on. You know, it's 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 coal and oil were great energy systems for the 16th and 19th century, but. Now we should be following Germany's lead and committing to being off fossil fuels by mid-century. And, and, you know, the other advantage of doing like solar and wind on and offshore is no, no wind spill ever destroyed, a, you know, your favorite beach. That's right. That's right. But we need to, you know, we need to regulate the oil industry. They're like kids. You're just going to run amok if you give them a chance. So we have to, you know, fence them in to where they're going to, where they're going to play. And uh, so... We're not going to be able to exclude them from um, places from the southeast coast by just creating national marine sanctuaries because national marine sanctuaries have to be approved by Congress, and you know how good Congress is at reaching consensus on stuff. So we, well, we need have, to, we have have to make it collective action. Yeah, and we have to make it a list miss for the next president because the president well, no, is the one this president who... needs to step up and not... You know, and, and listen to the locals and not permit drilling for gas and oil and mineral mining on the reefs that are, are potential threats. Instead of just closing off the whole ocean, we know which are the areas. So in the Northeast, we, uh, the president is looking into creating a national marine monument, uh, which is, you know, use the Antiquities Act to uh, protect um, pristine areas in the most heavily fished waters of uh, America from oil and gas and mineral mining. And um, everyone up here talks about the fishing problems, but the, the truth of the matter is the fishermen have successfully managed Cassius Ledge and the um, slope waters um, so that those areas have not been disturbed by trawling. They're pristine. We've got six-foot kelp forests on um, Cassius Ledge with its own indigenous kind of red-colored codfish swimming there. So... The threat is not the fishermen. The threat is, as in the southeast, oil and gas, but especially mineral mining. And uh, so uh, we have uh, these high-tech metals are encrusted on the surfaces. They're paving these seamounts. And uh, we're going to talk about that risk and how we need to act to stop it after a short break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean.com. 
www.donatethenumber4oceans.org. That is www.donatethenumber4oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about saving the ocean, same thing we do every day, and my guest is uh, David Helvard from, what are you from, David? <laughs> uh, Blue Frontier. Blue Frontiers. Uh, Bluefront.org is a website for our organization, and we try and be honest brokers among all the uh, marine conservationists and other ocean stakeholders who have have a stake in having healthy seas and uh, coasts and the communities that depend on them. And you've just been fabulous the way you helped spearhead pulling together the Sea Party and held a rally on November 4th in Washington uh, that gave a lot of support to the people in the southeast U.S. that are upset with the oil and gas drilling off of their coast. We have a threat up here in off of Massachusetts, off of New England, um, uh, Cash's Ledge is uh, about 80 miles east of Gloucester and 100 miles south of Portland, Maine. And um, then on the south side of George's Banks, about 120 miles out of Chatham, is uh, Oceanographer's Canyon. And there are five, five canyons altogether, Oceanographer's, Gilbert, Lydonia, Nigren, and Heason's Canyons, heading further and further offshore on the continental slope there. These canyons plunge 10,000 feet deep. And then beyond them are four seamounts, Bear, Fasalia, Middleus, and Retriever. Uh, these are, you know, seamounts that are rising up an ocean floor that's 10,000 feet deep, yet they 
the, the summits are still over a thousand feet deep, so they're, they're below the reach of sunlight. And, and Dave, Ryan and I got to go out to San Francisco last weekend, where we were wow. presenting at tabling at the Green Fest in San Francisco. And I'm sorry I didn't look you up, but we were working flat out and then catching up with my son Brady on um, the evening. Um, but we found that lots of people in California were writing and signing our letters to President Obama, where we're asking him to please, by proclamation, protect from oil, gas, and mineral mining these most wondrous ocean, this most wondrous ocean place in the Atlantic Ocean, those areas that I just described. And we're asking the president to please use the Antiquities Act to continue the good work of the Northeast Regional Planning Body unfettered by Congress, and that the planners that would be were operating in the monument waters as well as adjacent waters, you know, because the fish don't know the difference. These mm-hmm. planners consist of 11 federal authorities, including the New England Fisheries Management Council, 11 state agencies from all six New England states, and plus 10 tribal groups are represented as well. So it's a wonderful coalition. And so we're getting people who are writing things like, um, you have shown your support for protecting our land and the water within and around our country. Please continue by supporting the Northeast Regional Body and their work. And Vera signed that from, uh, not from Yahoo, but from San Francisco, mm-hmm. California. Um, the, the real threat is, um, are these rare earth minerals and, um, and high-tech uh, metals that are being mined there. And it's, it's, this is the best place in the world to find these things because the Atlantic Ocean, it's 150 to 135 million years old. You know, it was born with the separation of the supercontinent Pangaea. And as our continent moved to the west, there was a hot spot beneath, and it would put up from the Earth's mantle, you know, various push-up volcanoes. And uh, as it spread, you ended up with a chain of underwater mountains. And the ones that we're talking about, those five that I named earlier, four that I named earlier, so those areas have, um, have this foamy basalt that came up there. And the basalt is very porous. It's 60% porous basalt. And so it acts like a giant sponge. And because these sea mounts are all gnarly and, and jagged, there's a lot of surface area. And so for, you know, millions, tens of millions of years, seawater has been passing over these things. And they've been drawing out of it um, heavy um, minerals. And the minerals are forming a crust that is uh, covering all the rocks. It's called a hydrogenous ferromagnesium crust. And so that's that and, crust. And that industry loves those magnesium crusts. What? Industry loves those magnesium crusts. They've exactly. Been... Industry loves those crusts uh, because that's where the high-tech and rare earth minerals are, are mined. And so an ancient uh, seamount in China is, you know, well inland now, and so that is being mined by China, and that's the biggest mine um, for uh, these uh, precious metals. And to the consternation of all the other nations, China refuses to export these rare earth minerals, so they force the high-tech companies to move their manufacturing into China. And now the Chinese are looking at, you know, a similar mine could be opened in California, but that would cost more than manufacturing in China, so the Americans won't do that. Um, 
And meanwhile, China is planning to commence mining in Greenland because they see there's an outside demand for it that they could be exporting it as well. And so the Danish government's not too pleased with that prospect of mining up there. So these high-tech metals are highly concentrated in the crust of the seamounts, and they include tellurium, cobalt, bismuth, zirconium, nicobium, tungsten, molybdenum, platinum, titanium, and thorium. You know, these are all tiny, minute things in the seawater because the ocean is at the end of the line, so everything runs down to the ocean. And these minute chemical uh, metals get in the water, and it's just these basaltic sponges that are pulling it out of the water and, and creating this pavement that's over the uh, seamounts that's full of this stuff. Tellurium is combined with bismuth in an alloy that is being tested as the next-generation computer chip that is more efficient and immensely faster than the existing chips that we have already. And tellurium is also combined with cadmium into an alloy that is considered the best material for production of multi-terawatt solar cell electricity using that thin film photovoltaic technology. And so it's the solar cell industry themselves that are expressing interest in mining that hydrogenous ferromagnesium crust of the seamounts. And that's just the high-tech metals. Then we have the rare earth elements on the surface of the seamounts off New England shore, and these include cerium, europium, lithanium, and yitterum, yttrium. I'm just going to talk about those four because cerium is a chemical oxidizing agent and a polishing powder, and that's what gives glass and ceramics their yellow colors, and it's a catalyst for self-cleaning ovens, and it's the fluid catalytic cracking catalyst for all the oil refineries that are going on. It's also combined with iron to create the flints that spark our lighters. And then europium, is, it, that, that's what's in the red and blue phosphorus colors. And it's used in lasers and mercury vapor lamps and fluorescent lamps. And it's an NMR relaxation agent. Hmm. Then the third one is uh, lithanium, lithanium which is, uh, or lacinum, I'm not very good at this. This is really bizarre stuff. These are actual chemical elements. Uh, and it's high in refraction, refractive index that's used in the alkali-resistant glass. And it's also a component of flint, hydrogen storage, battery electrodes, camera lenses, and it also is a fluid catalytic cracking catalyst for oil refineries. And finally, yttrium with a Y, its symbol is just Y, is used in energy-efficient light bulbs. Why, yttrium is necessary for yttrium aluminum garnet lasers, yttrium vanadate, which is a host for europium in television red phosphor, and it's also used in high-temperature superconductors, uh, stabilizing zirconia and iron garnet microwave filters and spark plugs and gas mantles. So these are very sought after by mostly wealthy Americans. And uh, so this is, you know, going to become something that uh, they're a little more hungry for than fish. You know, fish is only consumed by like 2% of our country here. But uh, uh, so President George Bush, he protected the seamounts in the Pacific Ocean when he created by proclamation the National Monument out there. And so that was the single 
largest fully protected conservation area that's now under the U.S. flag. And so we're calling on President Obama to lead by protecting these Atlantic seamounts in the American waters as part of his national marine monument for the Atlantic Ocean. And, um, and so you add on to that the canyons where the sperm whales, I've seen, I've, I took a, uh, did I tell you about this last time? on the I'll tell it again. So, yeah, uh, a bunch of uh, shipboat modelers coerced me into taking them out to see the sperm whales on George's Banks beyond in Oceanographer's Canyon. And uh, we got out there, and we found a whale, a sperm whale, and it was floating dead on the water. And I turned around, and there was the captain putting on his wetsuit because he was a, uh, a jeweler, and by golly, he was going to jump in the water and cut those teeth out of the sperm whale. And so I told him, look, that whale is inflating with methane and uh, sulfur gases. When you touch it, it's going to blow. There are going to be sharks all over the place. And that's the only reason he got out of his wetsuit and didn't leave it, abandon us 120 miles offshore. But we went on to see sperm whales, live sperm whales. So by making this a national monument, it will help bring attention to the sperm whales that are out there and um, as well as the, the fecundity of life that's undisturbed on Cassius Ledge, and this will become destinations for uh, people coming out of Boston, out of Portsmouth, out of Portland, Maine, out of Newport, Rhode Island, uh, to go out and see these things. So that's good for the economy, but more importantly, it'll get people to care for this ocean area. And by caring for the ocean area, not only will they keep the miners out, but they will also enable Congress to put more money into fisheries management, which they get to do every 10 years, and not less. And right now, very few non-coastal communities care about fish, so why do the heavy lift of more government money for something? So this is a whole big plan to get people more engaged with their ocean. And, yeah. and what you were saying, I mean, the Chinese have it right. If we're going to mine seamounts, let's mine the ones that have migrated inland where we have a, a traditional, it may not be the best regulated, but we know how to do mining on land instead of putting, yeah. you know, putting our, our nearshore waters at risk. I mean, I started writing in 1977 about offshore mining, undersea mining, and, and the, the problems are, haven't changed. Only the technology has advanced where it could be done, but in doing it, you could risk, you know, all the other benefits of recreation, transportation, trade, energy, protein that that comes from uh, seas without industrial mining and the the oceanic smog that's generated by the sediment and the and the and the breakup of these uh, uh, of these crusts. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it's, right. It's necessary cool minerals. That... We can we can get them where we where the Chinese get them, which is you know that part of the ocean that's now part of the land. That's right. That's right, because each seamount, and this was the neat thing about my display, was that I, I got from NOAA. NOAA has lowered down, you know, um, underwater submersible cameras, remotely operated, I don't know, over 1,000 feet deep. Some seamounts are over 2,000 feet deep, and photographed the critters down there. And so I had them all spread out, all these bizarre critters, because each seamount, retriever, middleist, Vaisalia, they're all unique. They're all a unique combination of, this basaltic rock and uh, sand and mud and gravel. And so they each have different assemblages of animals that are unique to each one. And we just don't know what's living down there. But it's, 
there's this little octopus all curled up on the sandy bottom in one of the photographs, and what looks like a hermit crab, but it's probably its own species, because these animals are living way below the reach of sunlight and stuff. So now that we have the technologies... What? Uh, just the incredible thing is we're, you know, the oceans where we're discovering new species and habitats even as we're putting them at risk of destruction. Absolutely. We know more about the surface of Mars than we know about the bottom of the ocean. And now we're getting the technologies where people can fly an underwater drone, you know, from their armchair that can cruise around for years. And so it's good to bring the government in to help regulate that. But uh, we're just at the beginning of discovering so much um, life out there. And what a shame to have one of those seamounts extinguished by. So they have this, you know, they have to lower down this grinding, cutting machinery that they claim can, you know, saw off the crust and leave the basalt rock underneath so the sea critters can reestablish of it. Crustless, you know, basalt. I've been down in coal mines and I've I've seen the, the machinery they're talking about. It looks like a giant salami cutter, yeah, a giant like beef cutter, yeah, and it exactly. goes along the face of the coal wall for a quarter mile, and as as they have a metal hood in front of it, and it goes on to a, a conveyor belt, and as, they, as the machine moves forward um, along with the hood, all the land behind it subsides, basically, uh, you know, this quarter mile, it's like a moving earthquake, and I'm sure, you know, move that to the marine environment and see what happens. It'll be like mountaintop removal, only because the mountains are underwater, people will pay less attention. So, you know, the well, I'm, I'm a big fan right. of the precautionary principle, you know, do no harm. Well, what's fun is that when I was working the hydro winch on the westward, you know, we mm-hmm. would, I would tie a, um, a regular styrofoam cup onto the winch and lower it down hundreds of feet and pull it back up, and it would be one inch, a one-inch miniature of, you know, so they can take their their big ocean grinding machines and lower it down, you know, two thousand feet, and guess what? They're going to pull back up again. You know? awesome. <laughs> awesome. No, it's awesome just an incredible. I mean, you're going to have under that depth. People don't understand that the ocean is, you know, with its with its pressure, you know, uh, surface pressure doubling every thirty three feet, and. Uh, you know, and it's upwellings and it's currents and it's an unbreathable liquid medium that corrodes and, cor- and you know, every every metallic object it comes in touch with. Oh, yeah, and, the corrosion. And, I mean, the, you know, space, all you, you go, all you have to deal with is a vacuum and some micrometeorites and uh, the ocean's yeah. a hugely more challenging environment. And, you know, what you're saying about Mars, the funny thing is, we spend billions to get to Mars and what's the first thing we do? We look for a sign of life is look for water. And yet, yeah. you know, our, our water planet's so relatively unexplored. I mean, Jim Cameron was the third human to get to the lowest point on our planet when we've had 500 people out in space and more. Um, I mean, what I did and like... And we our water so much. We have no concern about our water. We just take it for granted and just use it as a toilet bowl and stuff. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, well, here, here David, we're going to take a short we're, break. We're, we're beginning to yeah, appreciate the water so here yeah. in our 500-year drought. Oh, but, yeah, California's got a big water drought. Um, but the scary yeah, thing so we're is we're, take, we've reached the point we're where we're now short. rooting for one disaster for the, the strongest El Nino in history to overcome an even worse disaster, which is our drought. So everybody's looking yeah. forward almost to the, to the you know, floods and uh, mud flows of later winter. Um, but, oh, you know, it's all, 
it, it's all a part. I mean, this the, the ocean mining is is you know linked to minerals, but every almost everything else we're seeing is linked to fossil fuels. I was you know a month ago in uh, working Dave, in Dave, Hawaii. I stop you for a second, David. Sure. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come back and we'll hear about your travels. And I know you've got some reporting to for us about coral reefs. So we'll hear about that after this short break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. I'm... We are talking with David Helvarg, and David and I are doing the same thing we do every day, try to save the ocean. And right now I was just talking about 
a wondrous Atlantic Ocean place that's most deserving of protective proclamation by President Obama. And you're invited to lend your voice to our call on the President to protect the most pristine ocean places in the Gulf of Maine and beyond George's banks out into the Atlantic Ocean. We're talking alleged canyons and seamounts. If you'd like to help us, please go to www.oceanriver.org. And there you'll see a number of campaigns. You want to click on Wondrous Atlantic Ocean Place, Most Deserving of Protective Proclamation. And we welcome your words as well as your signature. Uh, we will uh, make sure everyone sounds good. We've gotten comments from 52 states and territories. Uh, we're still waiting to hear from Guam and the Marshall Islands. Um, so if you're listening from there, please write. But if you're from anywhere in the U.S., it would be great to lend your voice to this effort to protect the greatest threat is uh, the uh, rare earth mining that's apt to happen off of our seamounts. Um, David has been telling us about um, the one. Uh, David's with uh, Sea Frontiers, and and Dave, how can people uh, learn more about your organization and what's going on these days? Well, Blue Frontier. You could go to our newly yeah, revised website at bluefront.org. That's all it is, and, and our work with the Sea Party Coalition, we've also uh, set up the SeaParty2016.org um, to, as I say, one of you know the new initiatives, of course, is stopping offshore drilling. I was just I was telling you uh, offline that uh, last month I was on a work trip to Hawaii, and I was snorkeling and on the big island, and unfortunately saw a lot of the coral was bleached skeletal white. This is coral bleaching is now NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, has declared a third global coral bleaching since 1998. Um, this is where worldwide we're seeing tropical corals bleaching because of warming water. If the water gets too warm, Corals are the largest living structures on Earth. You can see them from space, but they're also very fragile. They need seven conditions, you know, a certain salinity, a certain you know, temperature range. And when it gets too hot, the zooxanthella algae that give them their color and about 70% of their nutrients um, become toxic and the corals expel them. The corals are living polyps. And if, and if they expel the, the algae that gives them their brown, green, yellow, orange, and purple colors, the corals will start to starve, and that's what we're seeing globally because we've got the hottest ocean in history right now as a result of burning fossil fuels. So it's, to me, it's crazy to think of, of looking for more fossil fuels when it's essential we get off them. It's not only bleaching corals, but it's uh, raising sea levels. It's uh, melting polar ice, and uh, it's changing the basic chemistry of the ocean itself. Uh, the ocean's absorbed about a third of the human-generated carbon dioxide and turned it into carbonic acid, which uh, shifts the, makes the ocean slightly more acidic, which makes it much harder for every shell-forming creature uh, in the ocean from, uh, from small-shelled uh, creatures to clams to corals to form their homes and uh, threatens the entire food web of the ocean. So it just, it's, it's just one more reason why we really need to move on. That's why we formed the Sea Party to stop plans for new offshore drilling. We're having, we had our first fundraiser for the Sea Party at the Explorers Club in New York in October, and, and along with uh, me, we had uh, 
Donovan Richards, a city councilman from New York who's who represents the Far Rockway district. It's a low-income community of color that got pounded by Sandy, and so he's very concerned and engaged with uh, the issue of sea level rise, how it impact, impacts uh, poor communities. And uh, this Saturday we're having our, our next Sea Party fundraiser in Sausalito, California, sort of the other end of uh, the country and also the socioeconomic uh, um Spectrum, and yet there, Kate Sears, one of the county supervisors, will be talking about how sea level rise is uh, impacting uh, this coastline. And talking briefly, it's it's mostly we're going to talk about the Sea Party, but also party for it. And that's going to be in Sausalito. Anybody who'd be interested could just contact me direct at Helvarg, H E L V A R G at bluefront.org, or check out more about the the Sea Party, both at bluefront.org or seaparty2016.org, because I, I do think we're going to make this an issue that every candidate's going to have to address, and then like we did four years ago, when we're down to two candidates, we're going to get leaders of uh, the ocean community, of uh, co- conservation leaders and business leaders and elected officials to uh, write a letter to the candidates and ask them what they're going to do if they're elected president how they're going to respond to a range of issues on ocean health and, and how they're going to uh, work to restore the blue in our red, white, and blue. That's, you know, that's what we're concerned of and that's uh, concerned with, and that's what we, you know, we think is possible. Um, this, this spring we're going to have our ninth annual Peter Benchley Ocean Awards, and that reflects um, sort of the world's leading honors for people who have solutions and, you know, across many categories from, uh, from national leaders that we've given from the, you know, presidents of Costa Rica and Senegal and Africa to the Prince Albert of Monaco down to grassroots activists, um, who work on the ocean and, and provide solutions and turn the tide. I mean, it's, it's like, like I, I once saw a banner carried by Buddhist monks with cell phones that read, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And, and that's really the hope for for our climate, for our oceans, for our, our you know, recognition that uh, that we really do, you know, I'm, I'm more, as much as we're looking at these cascading disasters of industrial overfishing and oil, chemical, plastic, and nutrient pollution and loss of habitat and fossil fuel-fired climate change, I'm I'm still more frustrated than despairing because we know what the solutions are. You know, you stop killing fish, they tend to grow back. You don't you don't put new drill rigs off the shore, but you focus on on green renewable energy and and making a new energy revolution. I mean, we know what the solutions are. We need the political will to enact them, and that's what you know, folks like Rob and Ocean Rivers and and thousands of similar groups across the nation and our blue planet are doing. Or trying, you know, the challenge is to scale up the solutions quicker than the problems. Yes. So what do you think, what do you say to that, Rob? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, we, we need people to step up and, um, you know, help us uh, save, you know, help us do these direct actions that will help, you know, make for a cleaner ocean and more robust wildlife in the ocean. And we're And it's all about... I mean, it all starts with individuals. You know, people used to, when I'd, I'd give long talks about the, these cascading disasters, and people would come up afterwards and say, well, what can I do? One person, you know, I've got a job or a double shift, or I'm, you know, 
double workload. I, you know, what can I do to affect the collapse of marine wildlife or climate? And, and the answer is everything we do every day affects the seas around us. And it's just being aware and making the choices in our life that, that will have impact. I mean, that's, that's why I wrote books like 50 Ways to Save the Ocean or my memoir, you know, Saved by the Sea. It's, it's about how each of us can have a significant impact. Um, I think it was uh, Margaret Mead who once said, don't believe a small group of dedicated individuals can't change the world. Nothing else ever has. That's right, and people are making a real difference by doing incremental steps. You know, you, David told us about how the coral reefs are suffering because of carbon from the atmosphere being shoved into the, being taken up by the ocean and causing the waters to go acidic. And, and we help every time, you know, we cut down on our, reduce our carbon footprint by the littlest things, um, you know, combining clothes so it's one less washing or, you know, parking your car and walking part way to work instead of driving the whole way. Or, you know, everything is adding up, and it's really remarkable. Uh, fortunately, right, eating, the government has done Eating local, organic, much. Or, or, you know, not eating as much meat. They all, you know, you don't think of that as ocean issues, and yet, you know, it reduces the fossil fuels, reduces the, the synthetic chemicals that go into agriculture that then follow gravity right. into our watersheds. Instead of having a meat heads. sandwich, have a fish sandwich, and fish have no carbon footprint, and you'll be healthier for it, and you'll help support the fisherman who's bringing in the abundant fish. Um, so, you know, find out what's inexpensive in the supermarket, not the tilapia, but you'll see that cod is selling for $12 a pound because it's brought in, or 14 brought in from uh, Iceland, whereas haddock is a little less, and pollock is really local, and hake is like $8, so you know, you can help by, um, you can help, yeah, you can help. Yeah, I mean, and what we say on land, I mean, eat locally and lower on the food chain, that works for the ocean as well. I mean, there's really, you know, it's it's not that complex, but it just takes uh, education and dedication to being a change agent. And, and once you actually affect something, you know, go to your local uh, board and, and, and get them to, you know, restore a marsh instead of build a wall. I mean, once you begin to, uh, there's a you know radio personality out here in California used to say if you don't like the news go out and make some of your own, and and I think once you start changing reality you may have less time to watch reality TV but you certainly have uh, a greater sense of you know um, having some meaning in your life uh, meaning you can't well people don't mean to harm the earth they don't mean to harm the earth but they don't know better and so if you can show them that you don't need to spread fertilizer on your lawn five times a year. You only you just do it once a year, and your grass will be happy. Uh, people, you know, they they need to know how to make a difference because they just we're very good about referring to experts, and so and, and I have to recommend my book, Fifty Ways to Save the Ocean. It's it's pretty simple things we can all do, and it's illustrated by Jim Toomey, who's a great uh, cartoonist. Has does writes Sherman's Lagoon, the the shark who's who's you know white shark and his family. It's uh, in a hundreds of newspapers, and, uh, and you know, a lot of people like, like this are, uh, you know, the solutions aren't that hard. Number one in 50 Ways to Save the Oceans, go to the beach because we protect what we love. And, and, you know, Rob, when you talk about, you know, the waters off New England, I, I hear that love in your voice. You know, we're, we're all sort of connected to the seas in, in ways that are both, you know, uh, amazing and mysterious and, and, you know, having getting so much from it, we just want to give something back. 
David, we're out of time, but I, thanks a lot for taking a moment with us. Always, always fun chatting with you, Rob, on or off air and anywhere, and, and you know, next time we'll do it at the beach. All right. Thank you all for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue and for doing what we do every day, try to save our ocean planet. Until next time, take care. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Stop.